0: Well, we again, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, and today we find ourselves in chapter 7. Now, chapter 6 and chapter 7 deal with relationships, they deal with marriage, they deal with singleness, and uh, today it's, we're going to deal with uh, marriage and divorce, the, uh, the very controversial subject. I think it's important because it used to be in our society that 90% of Americans ultimately got married. That statistic is down to about 75% of Americans will ultimately get married. And of those that get married, there really isn't accurate data on how many actually get divorced. Typically people say about 50% get divorced, but nobody really knows if that's true. But what we do know is that it's a bunch. A bunch of people who get married will ultimately get divorced. Now, For those who get divorced, that In many cases, doesn't end the relationship. There, there's children, there's custody, there's support. Later on, there are graduations, there are grandkids, there are holidays, and so it doesn't really end the relationship. So today, we're going to look at what Paul says about the highly controversial subject of marriage and divorce. And what, as we go through this today, I'm going to give what I would hold to be the biblical viewpoint, and this would be our perspective here at Calvary. It's also important to note that some people will hold a much more conservative view than than, uh, we would hold, and then others would hold a much more liberal view than we would hold. Each person is uh, going to have a slightly different slant on this. And so I would point us to there in our outline from the book of Romans, Paul says, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So as you search the scriptures, you come up and see with what it is that you would hold that God is saying. I would also say that what we're going to look at today are several verses, but this is not a comprehensive theological treatise on marriage and divorce. We're just going to look at a few verses, what Paul says, and so that's important. So it's going to be more like an overview today. So as we begin today, the first thing that I would want to say before we jump into anything, and you want to write this down, that we believe that God's heart and God's goal is always for reconciliation. It's always for reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians, and we'll get there in a few months, Paul will write, and he'll say, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we always work for reconciliation. Sometimes someone will say, well, I, you don't know my situation. It's an impossible situation. I would only respond by saying that God loves impossible situations. He loves impossible financial situations, impossible physical situations, and impossible relationship situations. So the context today as we get into this in First Corinthians, is that people in this very, very pagan town, they're becoming believers. And as they do, this is a, a pagan town. It's very different than Jerusalem or Israel. In, in Corinth, people are sleeping together. They're living together. They're getting married. They're getting divorced. So it's very, very different than what you would find in uh, Jerusalem or Israel. I think also for uh, us as Christians, when we're in that dating stage of our life, we naively think that that because I love the Lord and they love the Lord and I'm attracted to them, they're attracted to me, that we can get together and, and it's, we're all just going to live happily ever after. Now, if you're single here today, here's what you need to know, that there is a reason why at the wedding we make you take a vow. And the reason we make you take a vow is because no one can live on love. As perfect as your relationship might be when you get married, there comes a day when you roll over, you look at that person that you married, and whether you say it out loud, under your breath, or in your mind, we all say something like, my God, what have I done? And it's for that reason, it's for that reason that we all take a vow. So far, so good? <laughs> so speaking to two believers, as we begin this day, two believers... They are married, they are in the church. we're going to pick it up in verse 10, and here's what he says. Paul is writing. Again, this whole section is on marriage and relationships and all that. So we're going to look at one small section in this, and the next week we'll, we'll continue on. But to the married, again, two believers in church, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord." Now we're going to see a couple of things as we get into this. Sometimes Paul's going to say, "I'm giving you some instruction, not I, but the Lord." When he says that, those are the times you can point back to what Jesus taught. In the Gospels. Other times, Paul will say, Not the Lord, but I. And those are the times where Jesus didn't deal with this in the Gospel. So Paul is is saying, This is the teaching. So it's not that it's not authoritative. It's just that Jesus didn't teach on it then. So I'm teaching on it now. Verse 10 But to the married, I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. Jesus taught on this. That the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must, and some of your Bibles, most of your Bibles will say, must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So the idea is that you have two believers, they're in church, and one day they wake up, they roll over, they look at one another, and they go, I just, I just don't want to be married to you anymore. I, I think maybe you'd be, married, you'd be happier if you're married to somebody else. I'd be happier if I was married to somebody else. And they begin to reason, they say. And you know, really, when you think about it, God just wants us to be happy, doesn't he? It's just really what he wants. And so they began to rationalize. And here in Corinth, people are getting divorced, So that's the context. So go ahead and write this down. One of the things that we've just saw in these two verses is that that two believers are not to get divorced. Write that down. God's view of marriage is one man, one woman, and it's for life. That's the idea. Jesus speaking there in Matthew's gospel says this there in your outline. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, Jesus, whenever he defines marriage, he always points back to Adam and Eve In the beginning, that was God's design. It was male, female, and it was for life. That was the idea. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. And they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, God, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Let man not separate. So marriage is two coming together, and the Bible calls it becoming one flesh. So the idea is that you have the same last name, you live in the same house, and you worship the same God. You become married. And from the Bible's view, you also want to write this down, that marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. A contract says, I will do this if you do that. And we've certainly had those through the years here at Calvary. Somebody will give us a contract and we think nothing of Xing out paragraphs, drawing lines through, initialing, crossing out, adding in things. And you go back and forth until you have an agreement. That's a contract. A covenant is very different. A covenant says, I do. And, And it really doesn't have to do with what the other person does. You just say, I do. So when Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, That's a covenant, not a contract. It's a covenant because Jesus says, this is what I'm doing. He does not attach as long as you do this, this, and this. So marriage from God's perspective is a covenant. It's not a contract. Back in the Old Testament and uh, in Corinth, they, they were having a real problem with divorce. So back in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, there in your outline, just to kind of highlight a couple of things, uh, I'll have you underline a few things as we read through. He says, you ask, why has God abandoned us? They, they were sensing that God just seemed to be, not be there in, in the way that they were used to. He says, it's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, for she is, uh, though she is your partner, and the wife of your marriage, and then what's that word? Covenant. Go ahead and underline that. So has the Lord, has has not the Lord made them one? In flesh, I've underlined, and spirit, they are his. And why? Why one? Underline, because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. God says, I hate divorce. Underline that. Says the Lord God of Israel and I hate a man's, underline, covering himself with violence, as well as with, his, uh, as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. So there's a couple of things that, that God highlights here. First of all, marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's deeper than a, than a contract. The reason that God gave marriage, he says, to have godly offspring. The idea is that even as we saw today in our baby dedication, you have a man and woman coming together in the Lord in a covenant relationship, choosing to represent the Lord to their children so that their children can grow up looking at mom and dad and saying, I want what mom and dad have because it's real. God says, I want you to come together in in holy matrimony, we would say, to have godly offspring. And then God says, I want you to know that I hate divorce. Now, God's not saying he hates people who get divorced. He hates divorce itself. He hates what it does. Then he likens divorce to violence. And I had you underline that, Who covering himself with violence. God likens divorce to violence because he knows what it does. He knows what it does to families. He knows what it does to children. And for those of you who've walked through that, you know how painful that was to see your parents get divorced or or to grow up without a a father or a mother in the home. You, You know how difficult that was. And so God likens that to divorce. So here in Corinth, as Paul is writing to them, the Corinthians are saying, you know, we have these irreconcilable differences. And so we'd be happier if we were with somebody else. If you've been married more than, say, three or four months, uh, you've certainly learned that uh, you have irreconcilable differences. Is this true? See, in in my family, when I married Cheryl, I really thought that I was getting a scuba buddy, and uh, we were going to rid the ocean of the lobster vermin. (laughs) Cheryl, on the other hand, she thought she was getting a mall buddy, (laughs) and we were both sorely deluded. (laughs) We were not getting what we thought. And when you think about it, God, in his sense of humor, he loves to put opposites together. And I know you've heard me say that, you know, if you're a morning person, then you've probably married, you've married somebody who can sleep till noon, and it just drives you nuts. If if uh, you're somebody who wants to save, 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 you know, you've married somebody who wants to spin, spin, spin. When it comes to the physical relationship, one of you is like, drop everything, and the other one is like, drop dead. God just loves, (laughs) loves to put opposites together. So here's what you'll learn. Here's what you'll learn. And you want to write this down. Marriage is discipleship. Marriage is discipleship. So there you are. You've got your little devotional discipleship book. You can throw that away because your biggest discipleship project is probably sitting right next to you. That's what God uses to make us disciples. I I love this verse, and um, there in your outline, it says, he was saying to them all, Jesus is speaking, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, what's that word? Daily. Daily. I don't like that word. And follow me. So this is why here at Calvary, they don't let me do a lot of marriage counseling. As a matter of fact, I don't do any marriage counseling. And here's the reason why. I'm 100% of all the couples that I've ever done marriage counseling for, they have all left the church. So they come in and they say, Pastor Dan, would you counsel us? We just really think you could help us. I hear them saying, we're thinking of finding a new church. Could you help us out the door? Come on in. (laughs) So I don't do marriage counseling. And so when somebody asks me, the staff, no. Now here's why. Most marriage problems come down to this. This one verse, Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. Most marriage problems come down to one or both partners saying, I want the other one to deny themselves, but I really don't want to deny myself. And uh, then the other ones, sometimes they come in and they say, well, you know, I'm not the problem, but if this one here gets fixed, everything's gonna be okay because I'm not the problem and you've probably heard people like that. And just know that if you're that person saying, I'm not the problem, the other person is the problem, you fix them, we all know who the real problem is. (laughs) Stuff I don't say actually in counseling. So you'll find that before you got married, everything they did was so cute. I just, I just love the, did you hear the the way he holds that cup, the way that they do that? And don't you just love the way she giggles? It's just so cute. And then you get married and you're like, could you just shut up? You're just, you're just driving me nuts with that whole thing. Why do you do that? And now, am I the only one? Don't leave me here. (laughs) So it drives you nuts. So now God does that for discipleship. So at the very best, at the very best, two people love Jesus love God one of you know all that uh, marriage is still at the very best two selfish self-centered people coming together and you don't realize how selfish and self-centered you are until you get married and it's the very thing that God uses in your life to make you a disciple it's what he does to work out those rough edges in your life now if you're really selfish and self-centered and marriage isn't doing it, God says, all right, let's add a couple of kids to that mix. And then you go on from there. And if that doesn't work, he adds more apparently. So the context here is two believers who say, we're just not getting along. We're just not getting along anymore and we want out. So write this down. When Christians divorce, they're to stay single. It's two Christians. When Christians divorce Christians, they need to stay single. So the question is, are there exceptions? Are there loopholes? Are there ways around this? So I want to give a couple of possible thoughts here, and you want to write this down. First of all, uh, one possibility is death. Write that down. It's been our experience here at Calvary that nothing ends a marriage like death, which leads to the obvious question that you're asking, can I kill them? No, no, that would be murder. It, it has to be natural causes, okay? So ladies, you just start feeding him bacon three meals a day. It'll take time, but you'll get there. And he'll die happy, by the way. So I know that tomorrow I'm going to get an email. I said, Pastor, we went out to lunch afterward, and she ordered me a bacon, lettuce, and tomato. She said, yeah, get the bacon burger. So that's one way that the marriage ends, and then you're free. Number two, and you want to write this down, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. And from the Old Testament, back in Leviticus, it says, if a man commits adultery, there in your outline, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. And the idea is that God takes this very serious, very serious. But again, what you notice is that death is what ultimately ended the relationship. However, in the New Testament, in a very different culture, immorality was not punishable by death. So I want you to notice what Jesus says. In the New Testament, it says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and that word there is porneia, and marries another woman, commits adultery. I'm going to come back to this verse in a minute, but I wanted to highlight that word porneia for a moment. The word porneia in most of your translations it will translate as immorality. Porneia is, is one of those words that covers a wide range of sexual behaviors, activity, anything outside of the bonds of marriage. Porneia is the Greek word from which we get the English word pornography. And so it would encompass that. So, so here, here's the idea. Any sexual behavior outside the bonds of marriage has the ability to kill a marriage. It kills trust. It it, it it just destroys the relationship. And so that word porneia doesn't just mean adultery. And that's important because every once in a while a guy will come in, this happened several times, but a guy will come in he'll say something like, well, pastor, she can't really divorce me. I mean, I didn't commit technical adultery. I mean, we did some things, but we didn't do that. So technically I didn't commit adultery. I don't know how it is in your family, but I don't have to commit technical adultery to be technically dead (laughs) because anything outside the bonds of marriage. Does that make sense? Pornea ends a relationship. Now, the goal is always for restoration, but sometimes it kills a relationship. And it's, it's a wide range of sexual activity outside of anything outside of marriage. I'm going to give a slight side point here. It's kind of out of the flow, but I'm just going to put this out for, um, for just something to think about. In verse, in that passage we just read, Matthew 19:9, 9, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Uh, one of the things that it's almost as if it's assumed that if you do divorce, you're probably going to remarry. In the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, it says this on your outline. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And they would debate what that is. He writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man 's wife so in in the Old Testament, when a, a couple got divorced, it was the man he would write a certificate of divorce, and he would hand that to her, probably one of those awkward family moments you might say and so he would give her the certificate of divorce, and the reason for that would be first of all for her protection, so that when she goes out nobody could accuse her of immorality. She would say, no, I have a certificate of divorce that my husband gave me. That would be the first reason. The second reason would be when she marries somebody else, the first husband can't come back and say, what are you doing with my wife? No, no, you gave me a certificate of divorce. You said that we are done and here's the certificate. But the idea here in that passage is that when that divorce decree was given, it was just kind of assumed that she was going to go and have to marry somebody else. Now, because of that, Bible scholars, as they debate this, one of the things that you'll hear them say, even as they, in the commentaries and in the translations, where it says she must remain uh, single, or however it says that she must remain, there are others who translate that because that word must can be translated very emphatically or more suggestively and I'm not making a statement about here. I'm just pointing out one of the theological debates out there. So some of the translations will translate this verse in this way. They're in your outline. In verse 10, it will say, a wife shouldn't leave her husband. And if she does, she should stay single or make up with her husband. The idea that, that um, it's more suggestive that you do that. Now we would hold that it's more emphatic, but I would say this, I would say if somebody, if they're not obeying the Lord in staying married and they decide to disobey the Lord and get divorced, they're probably not now going to obey the Lord and remain single. So you, you just put that out there. Make sense? That's where you say yes, even if you don't mean it. Okay. So then, then there's another, another aspect of this that I want to put out. And we've faced some of these situations in our history. And write this down we'll unpack it. We're going to call this hardness of heart. So there's death, there's immorality, and something that we would call hardness of heart. Jesus, speaking in Matthew 19, he says this. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So here's the idea. It was never God's intent for two people who claim to believe in the same God to serve God to ever get a divorce. However, there are times when one of the members, although they claim to be a believer, still continue to live in what we would call hardness of heart. We would define that as an ongoing, unrepentant state, and although they claim to be a believer, they're they're just doing things that are so far beyond that that it's described as hardness of heart. And uh, this is one of those times where we like things that are kind of black, white, white, uh, right, wrong, that sort of thing. But there's this gray area in here, and these are the times when we, as a church, will look at a certain situation in a, um, a very individual way. We'll we look at each individual case, and I'm going to show, um, just put out a couple of things that we've walked through through the years. One, um, there was a husband. Uh, this has actually happened several times in our in our congregation's life. Both claim to be believers. Typically, it's the husband selling drugs out of his house. Claims to be a believer, but he's doing that. He won't repent. This is an ongoing pattern. She realizes that when the police come in, she's going to lose the house. She's also probably going to be guilty by association, and she's going to lose custody of her children. He won't repent. And in those cases, she says, I need to take steps to protect my children. We say, well, we, we understand that. We understand that. That'd be his hardness of heart. Uh, another time that's happened uh, maybe a couple of times in our church's history, a lady shows up, she's wearing sunglasses because her husband gets drunk and violent. She's wearing sunglasses to church because she doesn't want anybody to see the black eyes. She's wearing long sleeve shirts because she doesn't want anybody to see the bruises. This is an ongoing pattern. He will not repent. He claims to be a believer. She finally says, I'm, I'm just done. I'm done. To which we've responded, we, we understand. We understand that. There have been a couple of cases where uh, that the, in, where the uh, the husband for many many years would not support the family. Not that he didn't have the means to, he just chose not to, and it was very difficult on the rest of the family. It was difficult on the wife, and finally she says, "I just can't do this anymore," uh, and and she says, I, "I'm I'm done." And we we looked at that case, and it was ongoing. It was unrepentant, and we said we fully understand. And so in those cases, we were not opposed. At a later date, after they divorce, they meet somebody who loves the Lord and then they get remarried. Does that make sense? Those are very rare cases. We look at each case individually and uh, God's goal is always for restoration, but sometimes there's somebody who has hard heart in such a way that they're not going to repent and everybody seems to get that and then you have to make that hard, hard decision. You and I serve a God who goes to great lengths to bring us to him. And many of us could tell our story, how God went above and beyond to bring us to that place where we finally said yes. But when you look in the Bible, even for God, there comes a time when God says, okay, now we are done. There are times when we've encouraged one member of the family to say, there is no repentance, give time. But at a certain time, you need to make a decision, decision to say, we are now Done. One case in point that you see in the Bible is the story of Noah. There on your outline, we all know the story. It says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. What that means is God says, I'm giving man 120 years to repent. If he repents and comes back, then, then fine. That's a, that's a very ample time to repent and make some changes. There came a day mankind ultimately did not repent. Noah built the ark. God says, go into the ark. God shuts the door. When God shuts the door, the rain begins to come down. All of a sudden, everybody says, wait a minute. And as you read some of the ancient extra biblical accounts, they begin beating on the ark saying, we've changed our mind. Let us in. And God says, you know what? I gave you 120 years. You wouldn't. Today is the day. We are now done. Remember the story in the New Testament, Herod has John the Baptist beheaded and uh, brings Jesus in to be interrogated. And as he interrogates Jesus, it says concerning Jesus, he answered him not a word. There comes a point when God has nothing else to say. We are done. And so there've been a few times where we've counseled and said, set a date. If there's no repentance by that date, make the decision, and then there's no turning back. That makes sense. Yeah. Again, individual cases, and the hope is is uh, always always for restoration. Sometimes that doesn't happen because of hardness of heart. Well, verses twelve and thirteen, when a believer is married to a non believer. So, verse twelve it says, "But to the rest I say, not the Lord." Uh, this is Jesus didn't teach on this, so Paul's now Paul now is that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents. And I want you to underline that word, consents, to live with him. However your Bible says it, he must not divorce her. Verse 13, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Now it's very important that we all get the context here of what he's saying. This is not that a believer married an unbeliever. This is in Corinth, people are becoming Christians And so all of a sudden, they all began as pagan in Corinth. One of the partners becomes a believer, but the other one is still an unbeliever. So it's not that a believer went out and married an unbeliever. That's not the case. So one becomes a believer, and the one that's still an unbeliever, it says if he consents or she consents. There on your outline, I want you to notice the way that this word is translated. In my translation, it would say consent. Uh, If you have the King James Version, it says they're pleased. If you have the New Century Version, it would say happy. Um, If you have the NIV or the New King James, it says willing. That word, that definition I've placed there in your outline, and I won't try to pronounce the Greek word there, but it means to think well of in common, to assent to, to feel gratified with, to allow, assent, be pleased, have pleasure. So here's the idea one of the partners becomes a believer, the unbelieving Member of the family says, You know, I I don't really buy the whole Jesus thing right now, but I really like being married to you. I really like being married to you. You're not to leave. So, write this down. By words and deeds, the unbeliever demonstrates that they take pleasure in living with you. But if the non believer says, On the other hand, if they say, Well, you can stay, but I'm no longer supporting you financially well, then there's freedom. If uh, they're constantly making fun of you for your new faith in Jesus, there's a freedom there. If they say, well, I'm cutting off entirely the physical relationship, you'll never be with me, but you can stay in the house, then, then there's freedom there. There is freedom, but it comes with a very strong warning. Notice verse 14. In verse 14, it says, "...for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife." "...the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean." Underline that, we'll come back to that word. "...but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife. So the idea is that, yes, you you may have the freedom to leave, but if you stay, your unbelieving spouse gets to see what it's really like to live with a believer. And as they live with a believer, they get a greater opportunity to actually come to the Lord. Whereas if you leave, they don't get that, that opportunity. Does that make sense? And uh, so right now, if you are married to a non-believer and you're living with them and things are going on, how are you to respond to them? Well, I want to give you a verse. Peter talks about this. It's written to a woman who has an unbelieving husband. It could be written the other way also. In the same way there in your outline, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. So here, here's what he's saying. The, the goal is by the life that you live, your unbelieving spouse will be one without a word. So here's what this means. You want to write this down no nagging for Jesus. So you can't put teaching CDs in his car. You can't open up your Bible to your favorite verse and put it under his pillow, hoping that he lays down, hits something hard, looks up, oh, look, a Bible. I'm going to read it. It's probably not going to happen. Don't put tracks in his lunch. Just do this. Pray, live it out, and let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. Make sense? Good, 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 good. Okay, verse 14, he says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children are, and in my translation, it will say unclean. Now, if you open up a, a commentary on this, they will always, always say that's probably not the best way to translate that word, because the word there in your outline, otherwise, your children are unclean. I put the Greek word there, koino. Um, in Acts chapter 10, it's translated differently. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common you want to underline that word common or unclean. So most of the commentaries that you read would say that that word is better translated as common, not unclean. So it's not that if you leave that your children are somehow illegitimate in some way. The idea is that they are common in the sense that apart from your presence as a believing parent, they only have the opportunity to get to know the Lord as anybody else would but your being there in the family, living out your faith, even with an unbelieving spouse and an unbelieving family, gives them a greater opportunity. That's the point. Verse 15, he says, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So when it says, let him leave, and some of your translations will say, let him depart, I want you to write down, is a command let him depart is a command. You can't hold them there if they don't want to be married to you now as a believer, which was very common in that New Testament, in that New Testament time. Paul the apostle, the Bible tells us that he was a rabbi. And as a rabbi, you had to be married for anybody to consider you to be a rabbi. Paul uh, was also a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling leadership there in Jerusalem and Israel. In order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So most people, when Paul says, you know, I'm single, most people hold that when Paul became a believer, his wife divorced him. And that's, that's the, the most common thought there. So again, this is a, a very controversial subject. Did you find it at least interesting? Good, nobody threw anything at me, so we did good. That's good. God's goal is always for restoration. Sometimes that doesn't happen. It's always easier when it's a black and white situation, but sometimes it's gray, and on those things we always handle that on an individual basis. So next week, we'll pick it up in the next topic. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we wrap this up today, first of all, I'm, I'm thankful for your grace and your word and uh, how you speak to each and every one of us. And so today, maybe for some of us, you've spoken and you've said, hang on and hang in there and represent me in that very difficult marriage. For some, we're no longer in that marriage, but we've been walking around with a great deal of guilt. And maybe today you've ministered to us through your grace. And I pray, God, that wherever we are, whether it's a difficult marriage or a great marriage, in all cases, that we all purpose to represent you as best that we can in whatever situation where you've called us to walk. If you're here today and you're struggling in a marriage, you're outside of a marriage, there's been some difficulty, you have a prayer request, there's going to be some prayer partners standing by after the service. They would love to pray with you. As we exit the building, you can make your way up to the front, but don't leave here today without that prayer request being prayed for. Father, keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.